At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Just a heads up. In today's episode, we're talking about some difficult topics, such as suicide and sexual assault. So do what you need to do to take care of yourself. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 79. And so I realized that like letting people into it with me and learning to love myself in it, broken pieces and all, that is home. That is home. Jackie G is an author, vlogger, and speaker. She's written two books about self-discovery, vulnerability, and connection, and she spends her time as a motivational speaker and making YouTube videos. Uh, Jackie is also the sister of Alex G, who has been on Queerology a couple of times. Uh, About a year after Alex came out, uh, just a few months ago, Jackie came out too. And, And before Jackie came out, we had a couple conversations about her trying to navigate coming out after her sibling, which adds a whole other level of complexity to coming out. And Jackie has such an incredible story, which she has shared in her new book, Finding Home. And and we get into a a lot in this episode. I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today. First time having siblings on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Before we dive into that, a couple of things. First, I know so many of us are still processing Rachel Held Evans' death. It's something that I've been carrying with me and will continue to carry with me for a long time. Grief grief is one of those things that I don't think it ever necessarily goes away, but we learn how to live with it. Um, but if you're having a hard time with grief, I wanted to let you know about a resource that's out there. Uh, Kate Bowler, who's the author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, she's offered her team of experts to people who are specifically grieving Rachel's death. So if you're in need of pastoral support uh, or grief care, feel free to go ahead and email her team over at support at everythinghappensproject.com or DM Everything Happens on Twitter. Uh, that Twitter handle's a little bit different. E-V-R-Y-T-H-N-G happens on Twitter. And 
get some care for yourself because we all need someone who can sit with us in our grief uh, and who can let us feel it. Um, So please take advantage of that. Uh, second, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, Queerology is going to be back at Wild Goose Festival this summer in July. Uh, so excited to be on the Wild Goose podcast stage. We're going to have a lot of fun. Now's the time to start planning for that. If you want to join us in Hot Springs, North Carolina, uh, feel free to go grab all of the details over at wildgoosefestival.org. Okay, that's all I have. Let's go ahead and jump in. Jackie, hi, welcome. Hey, Matthias, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. I, I don't think we have had siblings on the podcast yet. Like, oh. so this is a first. Oh, man, that's exciting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, so, so to start, I mean, the question I ask everyone, how do you identify? And how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Wow. Well, that is something that has shifted and changed so much just in the past year. I feel like the most authentic answer for me right now is that I I identify as a uh, bisexual person of faith. That's definitely affected my identity a lot because if you asked me like a year ago, I would have been really, really certain about my answer because my whole identity was really wrapped up in where I was at spiritually. And that's changed and grown and stretched so much lately that it's been, it's been a lot, a lot of learning and unlearning. Can you share with me a little bit what it was like, what your spirituality was like, maybe you said like a year ago and kind of how you've moved through that and maybe where you are now? Yeah. So basically, I mean, it all, I was technically raised in a Christian household, but I didn't really take it seriously until I was about 19. And so like, we didn't go to church growing up and stuff. We just kind of like, I came from a very, very conservative background as far as like family goes, but I didn't really get into church culture until I was 19 and I'm 24 now. And so I got really, really deep in evangelical church world. And so about a year ago, I would have been, maybe not even a year ago, probably like maybe a year and a half to two years ago, I was very, very certain and involved in evangelical Christian church world. Yeah. Thought I knew all the answers to everything. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I do not know all the answers to everything. (laughs) And what has that journey been like? It's been really hard, honestly. It's actually like... Something that is probably the most emotional thing in my life right now, which I didn't even realize that till therapy like a month ago. And this was the first thing that got me to start crying was figuring out what my faith looks like right now. Because for so long, well, I guess only for about three years or four years, I was so certain about what I believed and why. And it was, it was my whole world. And so that kind of started to unravel a bit. Um, Last year, actually, it was when my sister did come out that I, because I avoided the question about, because like, there is definitely a popular answer in church world on whether or not it is okay to be a part of the LGBTQ community. And I avoided that conversation for so long because it scared me. And as soon as my sister came out, I realized that I can't avoid the conversation anymore. Like, this is really important to get a grasp on. And so 
as soon as I started asking questions and talking to people that I knew didn't weren't just in my like tight church circle, I started to realize that there it's so much bigger and so much more nuanced than I understood at the beginning. And so for a while, it felt like it was all kind of just falling apart in front of me, which was really scary. Like there were specific things about like my faith that I believed so certain to be true, like very black or white to me. And then as soon as one thing started to unravel, I felt like the whole thing just fell apart and it was hard and scary. And now, now I feel like I'm trying to learn how to put it, put it back together again. Like I called last year, my deconstruction year. And now I'm trying to like reconstruct how to find what feels real to me right now. And so even identifying as like, I would, I would call myself Christian, but I feel like that word comes with so much baggage now, now that I've, I guess, opened my eyes to so many things and so many people's stories. And I don't know, it's, it's tough for me to like confidently say that without me. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's been a journey, man. <laughs> no, totally. I, I think that highlights the, the very complicated nature of what happens when we start pulling on those strings of what we've been taught about sex and sexuality and, and realizing like, wait a second, this whole belief system is set up to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. And when we pull on those strings, that something that it was accomplishing f- falls apart. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so hard to watch that happen, especially for those of us who were raised kind of so deeply entrenched in those belief systems. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it affects everything as far as like friend groups and family and people all saw me as this one way. And then all of a sudden I'm questioning things and it's kind of just this, it almost feels like you're exiled in a way. Like you kind of get put on the outside. You're not like on the in anymore. You go from being like in the community to the community now feeling like they have to resave you. Like, oh, I've had so many of those conversations <laughs> and they're very, they make me very angry, which that's not fun. But yeah, it, it definitely is a whole identity switch because it also, like I try as I'm, as I'm assuming so many people try not to let it get to them based on how they feel about themselves. But it's like a really big battle knowing that just because I'm doubting things or questioning things that I'm still okay and that I'm not this person that needs to be resaved and rebrought into the church and broken and all that. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious because I mean, you, you mentioned your sister Alex is coming out as kind of being this, this catalyst for change. And, but, and I was kind of like flipping through your book earlier and you, you mentioned knowing that you were bi, or at least having some kind of idea of, of that you were bi, um, way before then. I am curious what it was like to then kind of have Alex come out and, but, and I mean, what is it like? <laughs> I, I've never had a, a sibling come out before me and I feel like, it would bring up so much for me if like oh. one of my sisters were to come out, which they, they won't, but <laughs> if, if that were to happen, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It, oh man, I was absolutely shocked because, so I've known about myself since 
I would say probably around like 11 or 12, like around the time when I knew I started liking boys, I also felt like there was something more to girls as well, which was really scary and confusing and just a whole lot of stuff, which I know that you and all the people who listen to this podcast are are aware of. But when my sister came out, um, I was living in Boston at the time and I was sitting at a, at a train station and I get, I, I find out and I, I start crying because I was so, for the first time, felt like I wasn't alone, which was interesting because I felt like there was this part of me that was now going to have to, that I was now going to have to look inward at and that I, I can't avoid it anymore. I like instantly knew, okay, I have to look at this as well. Um, this isn't something I can hide because I hid from it so like intensely for so long that I wouldn't even acknowledge any part of it with me. So when my sister came out, I just remember being really surprised because I, for some reason, my head couldn't understand how two people in the same family could come out and have such a similar journey. But at the same time, I was like, wait, no, 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 that was me. But But how, but me, but I thought it was just me and I thought I was crazy. And so it was at the beginning kind of scary because I knew that I was going to have to start looking inward as well. And when I came back, uh, I've moved so many times. Um, When I moved back from Boston to, uh, when I got back to Nashville after that, uh, my sister and I, uh, we spent a lot of time together and, and talking and the more I learned and I suppose like deconstructed my faith and became an ally and like a big advocate for her, it was really helpful in, it was really helpful in me learning to be okay with myself because I was sitting there, and my sister, since I was a little kid, she's been like my hero. Like, <laughs> I have just always been so proud of her and admired her so much that, and she has kind of always been the person that if I hit rock bottom, she's going to be there every single time to help me pick up the pieces. And so, yeah, when, when she came out and we were kind of, I was kind of in my journey of deconstructing and becoming an ally and watching her become more comfortable and confident and and just happy and herself. It made me feel less scared of hiding. And it also was interesting because I got a bit of a preview of what it would be like if I came out like kind of community and the people around us as far as that goes. Like I got... Because everybody, oh my goodness, everybody decided that they wanted to come tell me what they thought about my sister being out. And then when she eventually got engaged and then married, they all had to come tell me what they thought about that. And I was told so many things like, you have to pick Jesus or your sister or just people trying to resave me because I was being there for her. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, you have no idea, but you're actually speaking these things about me. And I'd like, I felt like I I got this like undercover double agent um, take on on what was going to happen as far as family and friends. And and so it was helpful for me to, I guess, become more confident in being an ally and more confident in just 
I guess the controversy of it all in general, like I went through all that in some kind of way before I came out. So I got like the hard, the hardest parts of it. I felt like I got out of the way. Yeah. And then when I did come out, it was wonderful because the first person, I mean, I came out to was obviously my sister. (laughs) It was a given. She kind of pulled it out of me. I was planning on telling her the night after her, she got back from her honeymoon and we were texting in the car when she was driving back and she just straight up said it. And I was like, oh, wow. Well, I wanted to talk about this tonight in person, but I guess thank you for that. But it was great because she really helped me get involved in a amazing, amazing community of, um, of people who identify in the LGBTQ world and out here in Nashville. And so she like had these different people over for dinner and was like, oh, meet this person and meet this person. And it was just a really safe community to automatically be like invited into. Uh, that's so cool to kind of get, I mean, you mentioned kind of having this test run in a way. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's so weird. Yeah. So you're describing what it was kind of like to have to have Alex come out and then to have all of these people from your community start confiding in you in a way, all the things that maybe they wouldn't tell Alex to her face, but because you're still part of quote unquote them, they can share it with you. Yeah. I, I think like, I know I've it hasn't been the same experience by any means, but remember being an undergrad. I went to a Christian school and and having those conversations of like people are talking about LGBT people, not knowing that LGBT people are in the room, like mm. and and knowing what it's like to be talked about. Uh, yeah. Oh man, <laughs> and, like, what was it like to have to face? All of that, knowing, like, wait a second, like, you're talking about me, too. (laughs) Oh, gosh. It was really hard. It was hard because throughout all of that, like, man, throughout all that, I was in the middle of me. It it felt like everything was happening at once because the faith aspect was such a big part of that journey for me and for so many people. I felt like... That was kind of crumbling. I was trying to figure that out. I was trying to figure out how to have the conversation about whether or not queer and Christian can even go together. I was trying to figure out how to have that debate and how to, like, I guess, be helpful in that, be a good ally. And so there was that. But then I was also trying to figure out, like, internally myself in all of this because it's very, very different it's it's a very different experience being an ally versus actually being in the community, which I don't even think I need to say. I feel like that goes without saying, but it was a different kind of battle because when I was in these conversations defending my sister and defending just being in the LGBTQ community or not, or I mean, it was a very different experience defending my sister and just defending the LGBTQ community in general versus kind of trying to get over whatever internalized shame in my own self I was feeling with trying to figure out my own sexuality. So when I was having these conversations and when people would come to me, some of them like, like there were a handful of friends that really just showed up in amazing ways for me and about that and kind of went on their own deconstruction journeys along with me. 
So I want to make sure that that's clear. But there were a lot, sadly, there were a lot more that really, really just kind of made it sting a bit. (laughs) And these were people that I had lived really closely with. And so when they were coming to me telling me that I needed to pick Jesus or my sister or reading these scriptures in the Bible or telling me that like just lots of cruel things, lots of cruel things. It was, it was hard for me to debate as an ally because it was such a personal thing for me in my, like my own sexuality. So it was a very, like, I had to really try and figure out who I was in all of it and really learn how to, I guess, not even just be an ally for my sister, but really be an ally for myself in it without anyone else knowing (laughs) I mean, yes, I, I I love that idea of learning how to be our own ally in a way. Cause, yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> it is such a personal thing, and I think even even now, now that we've come out, now that you've come out, I would imagine that, that probably is still happening. Like you're still having to learn, because I know I'm still having to learn how to be an ally for myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, so you just released a book called Finding Home. Yes. Uh, kind of detailing this journey of trying to figure out where you belong. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Like, Yeah. So basically, um, so the book, oh, it's been such an interesting journey because the whole point and structure of the book has changed so many different times in writing it. So many drafts that got thrown in the trash. Um, but the I started writing the book because I had a very impulsive, like, three-day notice move after a two-month summer tour to a city that I hadn't spent longer than 48 hours in. And I moved so much in my life since leaving my childhood home. And I felt like I was constantly chasing this, this sense of the sense of home, like the sense of belonging and peace and like just contentment. And there's a lot that goes into that. And I was constantly finding myself in conversations throughout each of the moves about what the concept of home means. And in each conversation, I got answers like, oh, it's uh, my wife or my husband or my job, or I just really love the city or it's love, or sometimes it really was for some people, the white picket fence and the golden retriever and that kind of thing. And, and I realized when I had this really impulsive move to Boston, I realized pretty quickly that I was not going to find my answer inside of one of theirs, but it had to be my own journey. So I started writing this book. I decided, I was like, okay, I want to write a book about this. And as I wrote the book, I felt like I mean, for anyone, which I know you, you just finished writing a book for anyone who's written a book, you, it's definitely relatable to like a giant therapy session. <laughs> oh my gosh. I just learned, <laughs> I learned so much about myself through the process of writing it. It just like peeled back so many layers upon layers upon layers of what it is that I was actually looking for. And what I realized while writing the book was that throughout each move, I feel like I was running from myself because most of the moves happened after something 
really painful and traumatic happened in the city I was in. So I moved to the next spot. And I think a part of that is because I am, which I know you are as well, an Enneagram 7. Yes. <laughs> yes. We it's can. so real. It's so real. Why deal with it if you can just move? <laughs> exactly. Just keep the adventure going. Just find something else to do. <laughs> 100%. Yep. Yes. Oh, I could go on about that. <laughs> Man, that was mm-hmm. that was like a huge factor in it. I just didn't want my life to I didn't want to sit in pain. And so when I was writing this book towards the end, I was in this conversation with one of my best friends in the world and we were sitting we were having a beach picnic. It was like the most just perfect stereotypical Malibu afternoon. And we were talking about what the concept of home was. And I realized in that conversation that the home I had been looking for was one found within my own body. It was me learning to be okay with myself, which I think goes hand in hand really well, actually, with looking inward at my sexuality, because that was such a big part of myself that I had hidden away and ignored and felt shame over for so long that, like, it was interesting because all that happened, like me looking inward and being okay about it about the same time as I was finishing my book. And it all kind of went hand in hand with me, I think genuinely learning what it looked like to feel at home in my own skin and to being okay with who I am, like flaws and mistakes and whatnot, like looking in the mirror and like really just loving and respecting the person I see back. Because for so long, I, I really hated myself for a long time and I was constantly changing and shifting and adjusting all these things about myself to try and fit into whatever world I was in, whether whether that was the evangelical church world or whether that was, um, is, I worked in the music industry for a little bit, whether that was in there or living in Boston. I was in Harvard Square, so everyone was really smart and I felt really dumb. <laughs> but yeah, it was just, I guess like, a reintroduction to myself. Yeah, you say you realize that you needed to find home in your own body or what you were looking for, what you found in your own body. Uh, and then you talk about, you have been talking about like all of these different things that kind of led you to move these really hard, painful experiences. One of which is being sexually assaulted. Yeah. And I mean, that's a topic that we haven't really broached on this podcast before, but is one that is a reality for so many people. Because when we are sexually assaulted, that messes with our bodies Mm -hmm. um, to a level that is almost incomprehensible. I'm curious what that journey has been like to be able to re-enter your body and and find home in it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like that specifically – played so much bigger of a role in all of this than I ever imagined it would be. I mean, it would have. And because that happened uh, when I was 17. And it was the summer before my last year of high school. And it was actually, it was my best friend's boyfriend who sexually assaulted me and then um, lost my best friend in the process of it. And it was just a lot, a lot of me learning a lot of lies about myself that I didn't know were lies yet. Lies like nobody cares about me. I am worthless, unlovable, broken. Like my pain doesn't matter because mm, it's interesting because 
So after it happened, I I told my best friend what had happened. She was because I I realized that I had a decision to make. I was like, I could either not tell anybody and go around pretending like everything's fine because I don't want to deal with this or I have to tell the truth. And I quickly realized that I could not keep something like that in. So the first person I told was my best friend and she didn't believe me and never spoke to me again. And so that instantly put it in my mind that in order to be okay and to get through life, I need to shut down my emotions. And someone who I I really, one of my favorite writers and just people ever is Glennon Doyle. And she says this amazingly. She says, she calls, I call it putting on my mask and she calls it sending in her representative to do life for her. And so I created this representative for myself that was like, the really happy-go-lucky, bubbly, nothing's-wrong-ever party girl and just constantly needed to keep that image up because I felt like if anyone knew that I wasn't okay, then they wouldn't want to be my friends. They wouldn't want to be around me. And my value of who I was went down immensely, immensely after I was sexually assaulted. Um, I'm laughing because I'm a seven. Um, yeah, so it kind of just, that was the first big thing that made me move that I, so growing up, I always wanted to be a dolphin trainer, which made me decide I wanted to move to California because I grew up in Colorado where there are no dolphins there. (laughs) So I remembered that dream and I was like, forget this. I cannot, I can't handle this anymore. I can't handle this because I wasn't talking about it and I couldn't. I couldn't play the part anymore. So I decided instead of dealing with it and moving forward there, I would just move. So I moved to California where I found out pretty quickly that your, your pain kind of follows you. You don't get to leave your problems behind in one state and just move to the next one. And so the trauma and the, like, I feel like the backlash to that is more long-term at least from my experience of being sexually assaulted, because I did so much Googling of like, okay, what is going to happen to me right now? And what is going to happen to me later? And what is like, what do I have to deal with? Because I was scared and I felt really alone and I felt really just broken. So I, I got to California and all the I suppose side effects, I don't, that's probably not a good word for it, but all the like long-term damage I found was a lot of, a lot of self-hatred from my experience because I felt very unvaluable and very worthless. And when I feel that, I kind of just tried to ignore everything about who I actually was. And like I was saying before, just try to blend in everywhere else and try and be what everybody else wants me to be because I felt like the actual me was really, really worthless. And I was so scared that like another, another layer of it was I was really afraid that what happened was my fault. So there was a lot of internalized shame about it, which I feel like I've learned now is a very common, um, a very common thing for sexual assault survivors to feel after is that they did something wrong because a lot of the way the the world is about that right now like rape culture 
tends to put some blame on the victim in it. And what was she wearing or how, like I was asked by people really close to me, okay, well, how much were you drinking? Well, what did you do? And are you making this up? Like there's so much that goes into it that puts it in your head that it was your fault and you need to cover this up. And so throughout feeling that shame, oh, shame just kind of ruins everything. (laughs) It's such a horrible thing. So throughout that, having that shame and having that self-loathing and just feeling so unvaluable, I just lost sight of anything, any part of who I actually was. And I just kind of turned myself into who I thought was safe and welcome in the world because I didn't think the actual me was. I just didn't feel like I really like belonged to myself anymore. So. Wow. Um, Thank you first for sharing that. And uh, you, you, you continue to talk about in your, your book then kind of like the, the deep toll that, 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 that took, like you're talking about kind of, finding that representative yeah. <laughs> and, cr- and creating this person to then to be in the world. And then you also talk about in your book then like internally the voices of, of depression or, and, and suicidal ideation and, and all of these things that are happening just below the surface that y- you're kind of splintering into different pieces. And, I don't want to ask this question in a way that puts a bow on things because I don't think we ever really can put bows on yeah. those on those things. And I mean, you're talking about finding home. I would imagine that's still an ongoing process. Um, I'd be curious to maybe hear more about that. Yeah. So regarding everything as far as mental health goes, Oh man, that has played a huge role in this whole journey because when the assault happened when I was 17, like that was the first, I guess, like real huge trauma ever in my life. And it, by learning that the way to get through it at that time, by learning that that looked like sending in the representative and putting on the mask, what was actually going on under the surface was getting ignored and the truth of what was going on was really terrible depression. And I didn't know it at the time, but oh my goodness, I I don't think I had ever been that low before. And so throughout the next, I guess, ages like 17 to 22, 23, I kind of stayed in that pattern of pretending that everything was fine because I didn't want to look inwards at my mental health because, well, there's multiple reasons. One was that I was, I was really scared of looking inward. I was scared of, I guess, dealing with what depression meant. So that was something. And then two, I thought people would think that I was absolutely crazy if they found out that I struggled with depression because I paint this image of being so happy and smiley and bubbly all the time that would they even believe me or would they think I was like an insane person? And then three, being in, being in the church world, a lot of the time that world does more damage than good as far as mental health goes, because there's a lot of just like, oh, well, you just don't have enough faith or, oh, we just need to say this prayer and then you're healed. Oh, I went to this ministry school that did that and 
it was just further damaging because they'd be like, what's wrong with you? Like, why haven't, like, you don't have enough faith. Just pray more. Like, they would even go as far as like, what sins from your past? Or like, maybe this is like an inherited something your parents did. It, it gets really twisted. And so it just, there's times when it gets, like mental health gets over-spiritualized and ignored. And I think that's really dangerous, like really, really dangerous. And so my journey with all that, I feel like I didn't actually start looking to take care of my mental health like seriously until I left Boston because my depression hit a pretty big climax. Like I was only in Boston for about three months and those three months were probably the most intense mental health months of my life. Like everything that I had been running from for the past four years was just coming back. And in the middle of it, like going back to what we were saying before, like my sister came out and I was, now I was looking inward at sexuality for the first time. And I was looking at like, I, I had never wanted to consistently just take my own life. Then I did those three months and I just kind of came to a rock bottom. I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping and I was just changing everything about who I was and I came to this rock bottom and I opened up finally. I was cornered in a bathroom by, uh, at the time, my best friend to like to try and get out of me what was wrong. And so I told her and I was asked, I was asked to leave Boston. And so I left and I showed up at my sister's door <laughs> And for seven hours, I just told her everything, everything about my mental health that I had been ignoring, everything about depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, um, an eating disorder I was struggling through. And it was scary because I knew as soon as I said those words, there was no turning back. Like there was no pretending everything was fine again. So it was a really scary first step, but it was, I feel like a life or death decision that I made by opening up and starting to talk about it and starting to go to therapy and just taking the mask off. And it was scary, but it was, oh, it was so worth it because I realized that I felt like what was destroying me and destroying who I was for all that time, like it was, I think, I think it was the isolation that I was keeping myself in because mental health is so serious. It's so, so serious. And I feel like when it gets over-spiritualized or when we're responded to, we're like, oh, just smile. Everything's going to be fine. Like, I'll pray for you and you'll be fine. And it's really dangerous. I feel like the best thing you could do for someone in that environment is, or in that situation is to sit with them and validate them and know that, like, sometimes they don't need advice and a fix-it answer or, like, tell you to just cheer up. Life's good. Here's what you have. Be thankful for it. But really to just sit with you and validate you in it. And so once I started surrounding myself by with friends like that and learning that like I'm still okay, like even if all this is true for me, even if I struggle with depression and anxiety and whatnot, like I am still okay. Like I don't have to clean all that up in order for me to feel at home. Because I think that's what I was feeling for so long was that in order for me to feel at home in my own body or feel at home in a city, I had to have everything all tidied up in my own head. Like depression had to be gone. Anxiety had to be gone. And so I realized that like letting people into it with me and learning to love myself in it, like broken pieces and all, 
that is home. That is home. It's a place where like you're allowed to make a mistake. You're allowed to have a bad day and you're not kicked out of the house because of it. And you're not put in time out because of it. Like you're still always, always welcome no matter what is happening. What would you say to people who maybe are in the midst of that journey? Not to say that your journey has ended, (laughs) because I don't know that it ever does. I don't think it does. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) But but for people who are maybe just beginning that process of looking inward, of of facing trauma, of facing mental health, of facing those things that that are really hard to face, um, what would you say to them? Because those things of like, just be happy, definitely oh, don't God. work. <laughs> no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Because I feel like the more I talk about this, and the more I write about this, the more I feel like I want to have, the more I feel like I want to have the best possible answer to that question that I can. It's hard because I don't know if it's so much about what you say as far as just as far as just being there with someone in it like just showing up and like as a friend to someone in that I guess just being consistent and validating however they're feeling in the moment and whatever kind of day they're having and so I guess what I would say to someone who's in the middle of struggling with mental health in the middle of struggling with trauma I just want to remind you that you're really loved and special and valuable. And I'm not sure if those words are even helpful right now, but I know that the main thing that I feel in those dark moments are that I am not loved and I do not matter. And just know that you're not crazy and it's okay to feel how you're feeling and your story and your pain, letting someone else into that with you, it's not a burden. And it's an honor for someone to hear your story. It's an honor for someone to be there for you in whatever it is you're going through. Because I know that I also get really afraid of coming off as a burden to someone if I let them in on this thing. Because I get scared that now they're going to feel like they have to fix me. And oh no, what if this is too much for them? And I don't know. And so I guess an encouragement would just be that that's not true. That's definitely, it's definitely not true. Uh, Well, thank you, Jackie. Yeah. Yeah. How how can people find your work? Uh, so I have a website that's currently being built. It is JackieGTV.com. But the main place that you can find me is on Instagram. There is a link to where my books are. And I also have a, a YouTube vlog. And so my YouTube is JackieGTV and my Instagram is JackieG.TV. Great. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful for you taking the time to to join me and, and to talk about some very real things. Thank you for the work that you're doing. It's so needed and so beautiful. Yeah, it's it's been an honor to be on your podcast. I think you're amazing, Matthias. Oh, thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> I've listened to so many of these, so it was, I was so excited to be on this. <laughs> Absolutely. You can pick up a copy of Jackie's new book, Finding Home, wherever you buy books online. Uh, she's on YouTube, Jackie GTV, and on Instagram at JackieG.TV. And her website is JackieGTV.com. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. 
Queerology is produced with support from its listeners. Join over 230 people on Patreon and keep Queerology on the air. Head over to MatthiasDrawbers.com slash support for all the details. Another really easy way to help support Queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasDrawbers.com slash review. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.